Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. We get everyone to take their seats, please. Hello. Welcome to today's Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Today we'll be talking about what happened at the Sochi Winter Olympics with uh, young Arden Shipley here. Put your hand up, Arden. Give a wave. Uh, he traveled there as an independent journalist. He's, he's quite looking forward to this presentation. He's a little nervous, so be nice. <laughs> he's not talking about fracking. He's not talking about the Premier's daughter. It should all go smoothly. All right, first things first, if we could get everybody to shut their cell phones off or put them on silent, not on vibrate, trust me, we can hear them vibrating. My name is Dylan Purcell. I'm the sports editor at the Lethbridge Herald, um, who, as I just pointed out to Arden, is less interested in sports and more interested in other things. But you know what? Uh, I go where the job takes me. I'm going to be your host. I'm going to remind you a couple of things. First of all, this session is being recorded, not just by Shaw, but by Annalise over there. Uh, so if you're going to say something inflammatory or controversial, or uh, I think at one SACPAW session, someone defended child molesters, just be aware it's being recorded. By the way, Shaw, uh, Channel 9, Sundays at 4.30, correct? Okay, tune in if you miss anything, if you get caught talking, tune in then. All right, are we ready? Lunch. Lunch is provided by the lovely folks at Country Kitchen Catering. You'll see them meandering about filling coffee, things like that. They're going to offer you a delicious lunch. However, I need one person at each table to play the role of heavy. That means you're going to be the one that ensures that everybody's paid $11 even for their lunch. If they don't, you know, if you have to, swing, kick, bite, make sure that $11 is in there because SACPAW is a volunteer nonprofit organization. And I don't get paid to be up here, so, you know, if you want to pass the hat and gather a little money, I'm, Arden's a university student, he could use it. <laughs> All right, let's see what else we've got here. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, we need to thank local businesses, University of Lethbridge, Shaw. The Lethbridge Herald, other media that show up, uh, CKXU, 88.3, right? And the occasional other media that show up. Now, the format is pretty standard. Most of you are familiar with it. Uh, we're going to let Arden go on for about 30 minutes. He went through his presentation last night, said it was 36. So we'll, we'll get him to talk fast. I, I, I think once he gets up here, the nerves will kick in. He'll move a little quicker. However, at that point, Arden, I'm going to give you, as I said, a very threatening hand gesture. It's going to start out like this. It's going to finish like this. I'm going to toss something at you after that point. The goal is to be out of here by 1.30 p.m. So after we eat, we're going to have the usual question period. Uh, the microphone will be set up, I imagine, over here. The microphone will be set up over here. You can line up, make your questions quick, concise. You folks know what to do. You've been here before. All right, now I get to welcome young Arden Shibley, who is a second year new media student at the University of Lethbridge. He also owns a local business as a photographer, originally from Calgary. Ooh. Uh, Arden moved to graphic design and photography following a number of years competing as a speed skater at the Olympic Oval. 
So I don't know how he's nervous to do public speaking, because have you seen the outfits those speed skaters wear? I mean, that's, that's a serious lack of shame sometimes there. After placing successfully in several photo and design competitions leading up to and during his first year at the university, Arden became involved with local film and video productions and eventually became covering the World Cup circuit and Olympic team selection events. Carrying the Vancouver 2010 Olympics torch was the start of his passion with the games and while working to find a niche in the photography industry, he secured funding to travel to the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympic Games. Are you friends with the Premier's daughter? Okay, so we don't know how he secured that funding. Uh, he secured funding to travel to the Winter Olympic Games as an independent journalist. Uh, he assures me he does not talk a lot of sports in his presentation. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Arden Shively. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll, uh, I guess I'll get right to it. First of all, uh, how did I secure funding to go to Sochi? Uh, it was rather an expensive trip. A lot of airfare and accommodations there weren't too cheap. I would like to uh, give a big thank you, first of all, to Elperg. Uh, they made the trip possible, taking care of uh, most of the expenses when it came to traveling to Russia to uh, see the games and do everything that I did. Um, this presentation will be available after. Um, I'll upload it to my website, snarephoto.com slash sacpa. You can see the presentation, the images, if you you know, missed anything, want to check something out, you know, if you're watching the feed and follow along or anything like that. Um, so first of all, uh, some background on Sochi 2014. The games were awarded to Sochi uh, in 2007, so about seven years before the games uh, go. The International Olympic Committee makes a decision. They choose a host city and say, we're going to give you the games. Um, it was the first Olympics held in Russia, barring the 1980 games in Moscow, which was technically held in the USSR. Uh, a lot changed in the seven years between the time that the IOC awarded the games to Sochi and when they actually executed, or when they came to fruition in Sochi. Um, there was a lot of issues and a lot of controversy that arose in those seven years, even up to things that arose a week before the games started, issues that people had never heard, of, uh, heard about before. So it's called the Sochi Games, but it's not really in Sochi. Uh, the games are held in two areas. One is Adler on the coast, that's a coastal cluster. The other is Krasnaya Poryana, which is the mountain cluster. Um, so some of the venues are on the coast, some are in the mountains. Nothing's really in Sochi. Sochi is just the larger um, economic hub, I suppose. But all the tourists, everybody was in Adler. Um, I was there for 14 days. I stayed uh, in rural Adler, about five kilometers from the coastal cluster. So I was a little bit, a little bit of a ways from the, uh, the nice, clean, and bright, banner-covered, branded uh, Sochi game. So I got to see uh, Adler for what it really is, I would say. Uh, this is the house that I stayed in. I stayed with a local Russian couple. I lived with uh, a Russian, two Germans, and an American man through the course of uh, the games. We all found it through Airbnb, kind of like vacation rental by owner, all that. Um, it was interesting. So people said, you know, did you have brown water and stuff? And I wasn't in a, a brand-new hotel, so there wasn't a lot of water issues or some of the things that you saw on the Internet circulating. It's like, oh, my God, the accommodations aren't ready, but that was my accommodation. So... Um, Let's see, I did spend some time uh, at Olympic Park. I spent a number of days there walking around talking to athletes, uh, fans, officials, locals, whatever. I spent some time outside the games as well, answering a lot of the questions. Um, you know, I wanted to provide an on-the-ground account, this is what I told Elperg, of the games because it's really different from uh, what you see from Canada on the media. It's really, you know, what they decide to share is what, is what you hear. 
um, and I wanted to find the truth behind a lot of the controversies that arose uh, coming up to the games because there were so many different things that came up in the news, like dogs and gay rights and all sorts mm -hmm. of things. People are like, oh my God, this is the most controversial Olympics yet, and it's Russia. Russia in itself is just inherently, um, you know, on the world stage, there's, there's a lot of questions and uh, <laughs> a lot of issues. So, um, first of all, let's see, day to day, uh, the Olympics. Did it have the Olympic spark was one question discussed on the ground. Um, people were speculating, you know, uh, did, it, did it feel like Vancouver 2010? And people said, oh, you're from Canada, do you go to Vancouver? I said, well, no, I was in school and that was a different situation. Um, but this is a picture from the uh, opening ceremonies. There were five, I'm sure a lot of you watched them, there were five snowflakes that were supposed to open up into Olympic rings. Uh, one of them failed to do so, and I heard an interesting metaphor in that, like, uh, like these Olympic rings, the games were very large, very powerful, and very symbolic, but in some ways uh, they felt incomplete, according to some of the people that were on the ground there. Um, yeah, so other things on the ground there day to day. Uh, a lot of the time when they didn't, you know, here, when they didn't have flowers to put on the streets, they put pictures of flowers. Um, a very Russian thing to do. <laughs> How much of the games was really, you know, was for show? Uh, there's, there was a number of facades that were put on when it came to tourists arriving in the city. What you saw on television, such as uh, that opening, I heard the Olympic ring that did not open was not shown on TV originally. They cut to rehearsal footage from the previous day, so that's kind of an interesting thing of censorship. But, um, yeah, was the city really so bad? You know, there was a lot, all the controversy, and then once people got there, all they saw was this big, beautiful, freshly paved, freshly built um, facade of the Olympics, and I, I can't really speak. I haven't been to any other Olympic Games, but it felt, um, you know, it was a show that was put on, for sure, as the Olympic Games usually are. Um, so this is, a, uh, this is a very large Sochi banner, English and Russian. Um, here we see a tourist having your picture taken in front of the banner. And uh, behind it, little did she know, was a naval base where there were a number of uh, ships that were moored. It's kind of an I interesting to see how uh, the Sochi, the Olympic Committee covered up a lot of what was there. So they had these ships that were patrolling on the coast. Um, and this was a naval base. And they, they said, put a banner on it. Seemed to be a very common thing around Sochi. Um, the Olympics were bilingual. If you went, you could make it through with complete English. I was speaking to a number of Canadian athletes, and I'm like, yeah, the Canadians will figure out some Russian. You know, we're usually pretty adaptable. And one of the athletes uh, was like, I don't need any Russian. I can make it around with English completely. I'm totally fine. Um, and that was kind of surprising. Uh, my experience in contrast to that was I needed to learn some Russian because when I was taking Octobus uh, Pisyadzievit, which was bus 59, like, I had to figure these things out. Otherwise, I couldn't tell somebody I needed the bus and I needed to go to Ulitsichinovitskaya, like, uh, it was a mess. So I needed to learn Russian. I was really surprised that a lot of the athletes and officials and tourists that were visiting didn't even, you know, didn't even start. So uh, let's see. Uh, continuing on day to day, this is a picture of a freshly paved, freshly street cleaned road uh, near the Olympic Park train station. Um, in contrast to where I was staying, there were more potholes than there were blades of grass, really, up where I was living. Um, so it was, kind of, it was kind of curious when I was near Olympic Park there and I saw the street cleaners going around. I'm like, really? Okay. Um, so tourists could live inside what was called the Sochi bubble. Basically, if you were an uh, athlete or official, you were staying in sanctioned um, accommodations, and that was some of the ones that you heard about the issues. The government, however, was in charge of the athletes' accommodations, and they didn't have too many issues as they did with private hotels. But um, you could live inside the, the Sochi bubble. You could basically stay in the hotel and then go to the park and then get on the train and go to the mountain cluster, see some events, come back type thing. And you would never really step outside that, that crafted, clean, groomed appearance of the games. 
Um, so that was really interesting. And every day I went in and out of this. So I would wake up in, you know, really rural Adler, get on a bus and go to the clean where the banner was and the water was $8 a pop, um, and then go back to, uh, you know, back to where I was living with Alexei, Alexei, and Anastasia. So <laughs> um, how Russian were Russia's Olympics? Um, it's, it was really, it was an intense culture being there, definitely. Everything, all the Sochi signs were in English and everything, but nobody there really speaks English. So one in four volunteers that I spoke to could understand what I was saying. You'd be like, do you speak English? And they'd be like, oh, get that volunteer 50 feet away, right? They can help you out. Um, and uh, you, aside from the opening ceremonies and closing ceremonies, from what I understand, if you were watching the Olympics on TV, um, you didn't really see much of Russia's culture or what the, uh, what the city was like. In a way, the city was sort of betrayed by the portrayal of the games and, and media and television um, that you didn't really get a sense of what it's like to be there. And then, of course, I got a whole other sense of being there because I was outside the Sochi bubble. Um, so this is, uh, <laughs> this is a uh, hillside that I walked by every day going to the bus. Um, this is a pretty common sight. In my experience, if it was uh, if it was in rural Adler, basically it was dirty. Uh, excuse me for a second. Slow down. Okay. Um, <laughs> Adler was very polluted. There was uh, trash and litter and plant matter and tires and everything, it, pretty much anywhere that it could go, and the locals um, really took no notice of it. It was an entirely different culture speaking to people that lived there for their entire lives versus what we saw. And I don't think you saw that on TV. Um, so it was a stark contrast between rural Adler where I was staying and the Olympic Park, like I said. Um, this <laughs> was a dumping ground that I came across. Now, the bus that I had to take to Olympic Park was uh, shoddy at best. Sometimes it was half an hour, sometimes it was an hour, an hour and a half late going over the half hour schedule. People, and, and when you ask people there, they're like, eh, it's Russia. Um, so <laughs> I, was, uh, I was waiting for the bus, no sign of it. There was, you know, some Russians and a cat waiting for the bus. Uh, and we went, and I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to go take a walk, see what I can see. And uh, I came across this. I, I saw it from up from above, and I, I took a little walk down there. And it was, it was a dumping ground, basically. It's an impromptu dump. There was rubble and different types of dirt and clay and metal rebar that has been uh, just like crumpled up and dumped there and apparently these uh, uh, these like this is a common site around Adler and Sochi and other um, villages in the region it's uh, it's not really regulated and they'll just throw it wherever I, I think that this was uh, once a riverbed and I had a feeling that I was standing on about 10 feet of rubble that was plowed over with dirt so kind of incredible um, it was really surprising when I came across it and I'm like anybody else see this okay um, so was Sochi ready for the games? You know, it was all the preparation. Are they going to be ready? Are they going to have everything good to go? Today? Okay, sorry. Um, are they going to be ready to go when, it, when, it, uh, when the curtain lifts, basically? Um, and the answer is yes. All of the, all the venues, all the infrastructure that needed to be created, the train lines, Olympic Park, um, all the transportation around there, traffic was good. They had incredible amounts of Sochi buses to transport people. Um, athletes and officials around uh, need be. So when it came to the, the bottom line, can they, can they hold the Olympics? The answer is yes, they got the job done. And if they hadn't, they sort of would, would have been the, uh, the laughing stock of the worldwide um, Olympic movement, I suppose. Um, infrastructure was sufficient. Yeah, required facilities were complete. Okay. 
Uh, Sochi problems, hashtag Sochi problems. For those of you that don't know what a hashtag is, on social media such as Twitter or Facebook, if you put a pound sign in front of a word or phrase with no spaces in there, um, what it allows you to do is connect with other people and find other content that is related to that, to that word or that phrase. Um, so, for instance, you could hashtag SACPA and read anything to do with SACPA all the way back as far as the first time that somebody mentioned it on social media. So, Sochi problems, the hashtag arose um, a little leading up about early February, just as the games were starting, and it, it just exploded. It went viral. Everybody was um, tweeting and sharing and laughing at pictures of all sorts of things that were happening in Russia that were just weird, like the water coming out of the tap being yellow. Um, I don't know, the lobby, like a hotel that doesn't have a lobby, but it has a picture of Putin. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, Sochi problems, it was really interesting. Uh, this, the account for Sochi problems reached uh, 360,000 followers at some point. For some reason, now it's defunct with all of 28. I don't know why. Um, it was a, a college student that started it one day because he was bored in class. Uh, Russians, they noticed this, uh, this hashtag and this topic coming up, and they called it uh, Zoradstva, which basically means malicious glee. Um, so it's like schadenfreude, basically uh, they, were, they were puzzled as to why the Western world was taking an interest and sort of almost laughing at the way that things were turning out as they were planned um, and that things were a little screwy the way that they generally are in Russia. Um, as Vlad on the plane to Moscow told me, he said, things get done in Russia just never the way that you would expect them to be and I don't think that could hold more true. It's, uh, it's very different, just, eh, it's Russia. So. Um, People on the ground there, it was, uh, it was a crazy atmosphere. So one question, you know, Russians were very enthusiastic, thrilled, just thrilled to have the games. Any uh, time you were at an event and the, a Russian came to the start line or if their team scored or something, Russia was what they chanted, and it was crazy, as is to be expected with any home country. But um, the question is, is that excitement valid or was it a little bit of an Olympic fever because of all the things that we said? What, what's happening with these games? There's all this, uh, any way you cut it, there's $30 billion of corruption, apparently, um, behind these games, all with Putin's friends and such. But everybody there didn't seem to take note of it. So um, locals denied the concerns of Sochi's ill fate when I said, what's going to happen to these venues after the games? They said... Not, you know, it, it's fine. Sochi's a, Sochi's a tourist destination. People come here all the time. They're going to come and ski and use the venues, and we're going to have the Paralympics. We're going to have the FIFA World Cup. We're going to have the Formula One track. It's going to be great. There's no problems. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, so did Western media then, is my question, uh, did they paint the Olympics with the wrong brush? So when there are reports of controversy and issues and planning and things that aren't going as planned and there's um, corruption and embezzlement that we're hearing about with the games, you know, if you keep talking about how badly these things are going to be, maybe they just, um, they are that way because, you know, we, we assumed it was going to be. We didn't really let it happen by itself. Um, when enough media outlets start to report that, you know, this, this particular thing is going to be an issue, like Sochi won't be ready for the games, Sochi might not be ready for the games, there's all sorts of things pointing towards it, we start to take that as common knowledge and we assume that that's actually the truth. Um, that was one of the reasons why I went to really see how things played out there. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Sochi, good or bad, like I said, I talked to some locals um, and I, this is, I guess I could explain this a little bit. Um,
that area there, um, and I, I said, how long have you lived here? And they said, 20 years. So they'd been there through the whole process. Um, they saw the games when, they saw the area when it was farmland and when there were locals there, and a lot of them got moved to a vi village, apparently. It's something I don't know a lot about. But I asked the man, are you happy to have the Olympics here? And the first thing he said was, they paved the road. I'm like, okay, all right. So I looked down, yes, I'm standing on freshly paved road, and beside it was about six to eight inch mud ruts which what I pre uh, is what I presume the, the road used to look like. So he was, he's like, yeah, it's awesome. And um, he said that in Russian, of course. I had no idea what he was saying. But, uh, <laughs> so he was, he was really happy to have the Olympics. The, what I, from what I understood, um, the construction was a very difficult number of years. It was loud. It was noisy. It was dusty. It was dirty. There was a lot of traffic going through the area, which was in contrast to Adler, which was pretty quiet and kind of lush at the time. Um, it's been debated that there was uh, there were parts of Sochi National Park that were um, that were constructed upon that were eliminated due to construction for the game. So they said, forget about the park. We're putting the Olympics here. Um, and so, but he was again, he was very happy to have the Olympics. He was enthusiastic about what's going to happen um, to the city afterwards. So the dog problem. Um, I can touch on this a little bit later. This is one of the. I have two two stories. Uh, to tell, and I can go into some of the, the question period uh, afterwards if you guys like. This is probably the lengthiest part of my presentation, and I'm already running a little bit slow here, I see. But um, I, I guess I can continue this later into the question period if that's okay. I don't know if you guys are going to have a ton of questions, but we'll skip the dog thing, uh, come back to it if that's all right. There we go. Okay. While we're talking about animals, uh, orcas. There were supposed to be seven orcas. They were captured from the Hutotsk Sea. And they were like, they're bringing Sochi, or, sorry, orcas to Sochi, and they're going to display them during the games. Animal activists were up in arms. They were saying, oh my god, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. They did capture the orcas, and they were on their way to Sochi. I think somebody quietly diverted them. They didn't show up. It didn't happen, long story short. Um, five of them are in China, and two of them are in Moscow being trained to be shown elsewhere, which is still uh, really unfortunate. But, I mean, you know, it's like, Sochi, they're bringing in orcas. Well, they didn't bring in orcas, technically. I don't know. So that was how that played out. Um, planning and infrastructure, huge when it came to the games. Uh, this picture is the, my first site when I got off at Rosa Hutor Extreme Park, which is where they held the uh, moguls, the half pipe, and uh, one other event, I forget which. But um, I got off, and I had to walk this 10 minutes downhill. It was mud. It was rocky. It was crappy snow as we see here in Alberta that's sort of half frozen, half melted, and I'm lucky I got some light hiking shoes because my other ones wouldn't have fared so well. I wasn't told about this, I wasn't warned about this. If I was a small child, I probably would have been like traipsing in the mud and stuff, and it isn't really um, something that you would want to see from, you know, the clean, bright, come see the Olympics because we're prepared. This, this area wasn't quite as prepared. Um, it was a 15-minute hike out, again, on the same thing, even longer, uphill at night. If I had a walker or if I had a small child, it would be a real issue. And that uh, kind of perturbed me a little bit that, um, that, you know, they made all the spectators from the stands, the stand full of spectators, all had to walk up this 15-minute walk just to get to a gondola to get down. Then we got on a bus and went back to um, the, the coastal cluster. Um, one other thing I'll quickly touch on there, snow was an issue. Uh, Sochi is statistically the warmest city to ever host the Winter Olympic Games. Um, and they thought that snow would be a problem because it's warm, winter, Olympics doesn't really work. Uh, fortunately, it did work. Uh, the 50-kilometer difference between Adler and Krasne Poliana made about 10 to 15 degree uh, difference between there. So it was 15 degrees on the coast, zero up in the mountains. They were skiing, no problem, and we were walking around in T-shirts and shorts. So that was cool. Um, 
Again, planning infrastructure. There were some solar and wind-powered street lamps at the uh, Adler train station. This is outside. Solar, wind, uh, solar lamps, and they couldn't really be bothered to put the sod in. So it makes you wonder, you know, obviously they were very hurried with the uh, preparation for the games, and kind of makes me curious what their priorities are. They did have seven years to get that done. Uh, but this was a common, a common occurrence, seeing, um, seeing landscaping that just wasn't done. They, I don't know, it, it could have been a lot of issues as well with workers that weren't being paid. Bring in some workers, they would do some work, and then they would get tired because they weren't getting their paychecks. They would leave, they would bring in a new busload of workers, and the cycle would repeat. It's rather unfortunate. Human Rights Watch has a 150-page report on the employment issues surrounding the Sochi 2014 games. I didn't have time to read it, but if you were interested, that would be something to check out. Um, almost all construction was halted. I don't think I saw a single semi-truck while it was there. All of the construction and preparation and stuff was just zip, none, zero during the games, aside from these guys who were finishing a brick, some bricklaying near uh, the Sochi train station. Um, behind them, more interestingly, was scaffolding from which cloth banners were, were hung. On the banners were printed an image of what the building behind it would look like if it were complete. <laughs> so you saw this all the time along the train line. You would just see buildings that look kind of odd and square, and you'd be like, oh, that's a banner. Okay, so put a banner on it. Right. Uh, <laughs> it was a very common thing. So it's interesting because parts of the city were deemed unfit to show to the public. They didn't want the tourists that were coming to Sochi, the people that hadn't seen the city, to think that it was what it was. They wanted to say, this is actually what our city looks like. Uh, so... Um, this is Ulitsa Chernovitskaya, basically means Chernovitskaya Street. Um, that's where I was staying. I, like I said, more potholes than there were blades of grass. Um, it, the Sochi Games were a $51 billion investment, minus $30 billion of invest, uh, corruption and embezzlement. But um, I, in my opinion, it was an economy that just wasn't ready for that rapid scale of development and that speed. Um, so things, like I said, with the, worker, uh, the workers' issues, Things just didn't happen because there wasn't the infrastructure to, to build those venues and to um, build that train line and just get ready for that mass amount of people in such a short period of time, even though they had seven years. Um, security. Everybody said, oh my god, you're going to Russia. That's not safe. Are you going to be safe? Is it safe? What's going on? There were two bombings in Volgograd, 600 kilometers east of Sochi, in December 2013, so about a month, a month and a half before the games. That scared a lot of people because a lot of tourists... Er, Terrorism groups said, we're going to make the games hell. We're going to cause problems if you try to hold the Olympics there. Putin went ahead with it anyway. Um, long story short, there weren't any security breaches, major breaches. There were two airplanes that were hijacked near Sochi. Um, one was on its way to Sochi and one went to Turkey, I believe. Um, but everybody landed safe and you didn't really hear anything um, Around, around the park. There weren't security issues. Everything seemed to be uh, relatively quiet. So there was a comprehensive security bubble that guarded entry to Olympic Park and all train stations. So it was interesting. You could go through security at a train station, and uh, say in Sochi, and then you could get on the train, ride all the way to uh, the mountain cluster, get off the mountains, get on a bus, go up to the venue, get off and view the venue without going through security again. So it was a comprehensive uh, system where they kept you, you know, they knew that these people went through security and we can move them about from venue to venue or place to place or as they wish um, and we don't have to put them through security again. So to reduce the impact on the people there, there was an engineer behind that somewhere and I was rather impressed by it. Um, no, like I said, no major security breaches reported. 100,000 personnel were dispatched to Sochi between security, army, police, uh, and navy personnel. Um, they were keeping things safe. Uh, the picture on the left there is a ship that was on the coast of the Black Sea, so you could see them off in the distance um, at any point. 
Um, the top and bottom are the campout and some of the uh, army soldiers that were placed along the train line. They would just walk in the riverbed below the train line that was at an appropriate level to, so that it didn't have to go up or down through the mountains, through the valleys, whatever, all the way to the mountain cluster. And they would just walk. And sometimes they were going in opposite directions, sometimes they were with each other, and they were just doing their thing. So um, that brings me to another point. There were so many securities, so many staff, that sometimes you saw them get you know, a little bit bored. You can see this. Uh, I think he would be a sergeant on his cell phone at a train station. I don't know if he was paying a lot of attention. Uh, this guy looks pretty thrilled to be doing what he's doing. Um, so does overstaffing lead to carelessness when it comes to security around the games? Uh, security in Adler was relaxed at times. Apparently that was to reduce the impact uh, on tourists and visitors. They said, oh yeah, we keep it tight on the outside, the ring of steel as they called it, so that people inside uh, you know, don't have to go through security that's really harsh every single time. Um, I don't know how much I believe that. The one time I did get close to the perimeter there, security was pretty tight, and they're like, hey, accreditation, and I had it, and I'm like, okay. So in Sochi, things were definitely tighter, and there may have been some truth to that. Um, moving to protests, when we're talking about security. Were there protests in Sochi? Uh, everybody said, oh my god, like animal rights and gay rights and stuff, we're gonna like protest, 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 and cause all sorts of problems. Putin said, no, you go here, and like 50 people twice did. That's about it. There were two protests that happened in Sochi during the games, which is a rather small number compared to how many people said they were going to be. Um, one of them uh, drew, drew attention to the plight of Russians in World War II, and the other supported Putin. So nothing, <laughs> yeah, nothing about uh, animal activism or gay rights or anything like that. Um, there were some new laws that were passed in Russia just before the game started that banned gay propaganda in the presence of minors, which bans all events like pride parades, which is kind of crappy when it comes to um, people in Russia that have, that, you know, might be LGBT. Um, this is Anastasia Busis. She is a speed skater. She competed in Vancouver and Sochi. She is uh, openly lesbian. I spoke to her about the games and she said, the media hasn't even asked me about it. I haven't heard about it. It hasn't been an issue. hasn't impacted me at all. It's been really quiet. She described the Olympic Park as the eye of the storm um, in a way that uh, it, um, when you were there, you didn't really hear about all the things that were supposed to happen leading up to the games. It was very quiet. It was focused on the sport. Everybody was just, you know, I didn't have time to sit and browse Twitter to keep up on what was going on in Canada or let alone the Ukraine. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult to, to hear what was going on outside when there was so much going on inside and you were just so busy day to day. I walked like 17,000 steps, which is about 10,000 more than I walk on any given day. It was a lot of distance to cover and you're very busy regardless of what you're doing, just transportation and everything. How am I doing for time here? Oh, look, I'm over time. Um, what should I do? <laughs> okay, two minutes. I can try. Um, this is Pussy Riot. They are a protest band. They drew, draw attention to everything that is anti-Putin. They perform in public, and they, they write songs that are anti-Putin and everything. They showed up. They tried to do a uh, performance uh, under a big Sochi banner. Cossacks showed up, which are militia men, basically, and they started pepper spraying them and beating them. The video is a little disturbing, and it brings me to my next point, which is censorship in Russia which was, uh, you know, going in, I'm like, is this, is this China-scale censorship where the state controls the media? And it wasn't quite that bad. The people there are aware of it, and they can get around it, but it's definitely apparent. Um, they were jailed a number of times for thefts they didn't commit, for things that weren't happening. It was just the government trying to do everything that they could to snuff Pussy Riot as their biggest critic. Uh, Yevgeny Vitishko uh, was another environmental critic um, leading up to the games, he drew attention to a lot of environmental issues that were going on. He was thrown in jail for 15 days during court proceedings. He was supposed to be released, given time to say goodbye to his family and collect his things before being sent off to a penal colony. He mysteriously disappeared. 
and went to the penal colony anyway. So again, the government just being kind of shady with things. Um, I don't know if I have time to talk about this. Uh, they said, we're watching you, basically, long story short. They said, if you come to the games, you will be hacked, you will be watched, you will be monitored, all communications are transparent. And uh, that imposed on me a form of self-censorship, basically. So I had to watch what I was saying for fear of my own safety, pretty much. Uh, was somebody going to come to my door and drag me out of the country type thing? The worst they could do now is not allow me back. But, um, you know, the fact that they published all the numbers of how they were going to watch, watch everybody that was there, including athletes, athletes and officials, tourists, journalists, journalists um, was a way of moving in front of their influence and self-censorship that were there. I didn't care about what I said, said what pictures I posted. For instance, I kept that picture of the army man using his cell phone until I left when I was in uh, Heathrow Airport and I posted it. So I was out of the country. And it's, it's rather effective. People have to watch what they say because they, they, they fear for their own safety. I feel like I'm going to get cut off here. <laughs> okay, I'll, uh, I'll try to make this quick. Um, channel 1, Channel 2, Channel 3, don't trust them, that's all Putin's TV, said the man I was living with uh, when the things with Ukraine came up. Um, it was, uh, you know, they were just starting and everybody was sort of curious what was going on. He wanted to know, but he was watching, watching Reuters TV on his iPad instead of watching uh, the TV because he said, you can't trust it, it's all biased. Uh, Mark McKinnon, he's a journalist for the Globe and Mail. His tweet summed it up very nicely. Ukraine... Uh, Ukraine Police close on protesters, at least five reported dead. And Russia Today said, policemen killed as rioters attack government buildings. So only, they said only a policeman was killed, that's it. Um, again, biased media when it's state-controlled, and it is something similar to the situation in China, which is rather unfortunate. Um, my last thing here, what about the city? What's happening? They have planned all sorts of things. This is a uh, rendering of what the Formula One track will look like. I say it's an excuse. I would be lying by omission if I say, didn't uh, say that Sydney did the same thing in 2002. They installed the Formula One track and continue to bring people there. They already have an entry gate. They already have a big bunch of flat paved land. So put a, put a Formula One track on it. Bring some people there, I guess. Um, so that, the Paralympic Games and the FIFA World Cup, hopefully in uh, 2018, will continue to bring people there. But, uh, you know, that's debatable. I'll make sure someone asks about the dog. <laughs> and then, uh, mostly, summary. Um, I think the IRC should be accountable for host city Olympic success when it comes down to it. When they select the host city, um, they should make sure that that city is going to perform on all the things that they promise when they bid for the Olympics. Um, the misrepresentation of the host city was very apparent, and what you saw on TV was nothing like what I saw in person in Sochi. Um, the Olympics are a blessing and a burden. It's great to have them there. People are thrilled. The event of sport is fantastic, but there's no city that has come out of the Olympics with a profit, and that's kind of an issue considering the amount of money that goes into it. Um, there are a lot of people that talk about boycotting the games, and an athlete's perspective on that is they're athletes that spend their entire lives trying to get to the Olympic Games, and if you boycott it, you're boycotting, you know, uh, basically their passion, and it's all about the Olympics. It's not really about all that crap that comes with it and all that baggage that goes with, so in the end, it's all... It's all about the sport. So I'd like to thank you for listening. <laughs> like I said, presentation will be available on uh, snarephoto.com.